greetings to all, and welcome to Theology in Particular, a podcast of International Reformed Baptist Seminary. I'm your host, Joe Anity, pastor of Emmaus Reformed Baptist Church in Hemet, California. And today I'm joined by Dr. Jeffrey Riddle, pastor of Christ Reformed Baptist Church in Louisa, Virginia, and adjunct professor of New Testament at IRBS. Jeff, it's a pleasure to speak with you again today. Hey, Joe, thank you so much for having me on as a guest again. Yeah, I really enjoyed our last conversation on the subject of textual criticism. I think you gave our audience some food for thought in that episode, and um, I did appreciate your perspective on on these things. And I, I must admit, I was really challenged uh, to think through some stuff that I hadn't thought through too carefully before, and so I do appreciate that. But today, uh, you and I are going to turn our attention to a course that you teach at IRBS on the Gospels. Uh, and I've been very much looking forward to this interview. I'm preaching through the Gospel of Luke myself right now, and uh, I thought, man, well, this will be timely, at least for my people. I think they'll appreciate uh, what you have to say about the Gospels in general. And uh, so, perhaps I could just begin by asking you a very general question. Uh, what is a Gospel? Yeah, that, that's a great question. It sounds like the, the question you really ought to start with in this type of discussion. So, I mean, I think most people who become Christians, uh, we one of the first things you learn is the gospel means good news um, or the great news about the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so, in Greek, you know, the original language in which the New Testament was written, the word for gospel is ta euangelion. Um, uh, Todd's the definite article and euangelion is the, is the, the noun and it's a, a neuter noun. And that word, uh, euangelion, uh, literally means good news. It's got the, the prefix you. Maybe we talk about a euphemism is a good way to say something. And then the second part of it, angelion, you may hear the word angel in there. And indeed, it's related to the Greek word angelos. But it's it's the word angel, un, uh, angelion, which means news or message. So put those two together, the euangelion is the good news or the good message so that that the term gospel uh you know we read the new testament paul talks about preaching the gospel so it has a general usage when we when we say preaching the gospel we don't necessarily mean preaching matthew mark luke john but we mean proclaiming the good news and if you think about uh, a place like first corinthians 15 Paul writes to the church at Corinth and he says, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you. And, you know, in, in this case, I think in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5, you know, he says, you know, he wants to remind them, you know, what uh, he preached to them. It's that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. But... For our conversation today, and I'm teaching a class on the Gospels, we can speak more specifically of the Gospels as referring to titles of those four early Christian works that are in our New Testament that provide 
a record or an account of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. So anyway, that's that's a, that's a basic distinction just to start off with. And I know sometimes for myself, when I when I am writing and I refer to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as a gospel, I, I capitalize it. Hmm. And then when I talk about preaching the gospel, I just put that in the lowercase just to try to distinguish, make that distinction between the general proclamation of the good news about Christ and these written, canonical, inspired, and preserved literary works that are part of the canon of the Christian scriptures. Is, um, is there a genre of, of gospel? I, maybe another way to ask the question is, are these gospels, uh, in terms of their genre, unique to the, the, the scriptures, or are there other, um, other works that might be termed gospels even outside of uh, the canon of scripture? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and the question of of genre or the generic question is sort of a, a key one. Anytime we do something like a survey of the New Testament or an introduction to the Gospels, the type of class that, that I'm teaching at IRBS. And so, first of all, we might just start with saying that where do we get this name Gospels for these four works? Well, th- this comes from... Uh, what the early Christians called them. And so, if you look at the, 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 the existing manuscripts that we have, the handwritten manuscripts for these works, they all have titles. I mean, very early on, the earliest manuscripts we have, they, they would write in the titles. So, the title would be, for example, for Matthew, Ta Euangelion Kata Matheon, the Gospel according to, kata is the preposition, ta euangelion kata matheon, the gospel according to Matthew, and ta euangelion kata markon, ta euangelion kata lukon, ta euangelion kata yohanen. So, this is what the early Christians called them, and, and so this is, again, what, what we call them. So, what type of literature are they? There, there's been debate about this over the years. Um, there are some people who would say that the Gospels really should be in a category all to themselves. Mm-hmm. There's nothing really like else like them that's comparable in secular Greek literature of the time. And so, they would say they're just, um, the term would be sui generis. They are sui generis works. They're unique works. But um, I think most scholars today of various stripes would identify the genre of the Gospels as being what they would call ancient biographies. And so, they can be compared to other types of works that we know from the ancient world from the first century where someone would write, you know, a life of Socrates or a life of Alexander the Great. So, um, the, the, the genre would be an ancient bios, an ancient biography. And um, there's, there's a, there was a key academic work written by a fellow named Richard Burridge uh, in 2000. It's now nearly 25 years old. And it was titled, What Are the Gospels? A Comparison with Greco-Roman Biography. And that, that book has had a lot of influence. I don't, I, it's been critiqued also. But I think in general, we would say that with respect to genre, the Gospels are 
uh, are similar to ancient biographies. But I think one of the, the key things that we have to, to take into consideration, and this is why the question of genre is important, is we need to distinguish that the Gospels are not modern biographies. Mm-hmm. And, and we have expectations from modern biographies, the way they tell a story. You know, you're going to write a biography of Barack Obama or Donald Trump. It's going gonna, it's gonna, to you know, follow a certain you know, type of outline of what we might expect in a modern biography. But these are ancient biographies. And one example that uh, I know I point to in the class, it's often pointed to in introductory works on this topic is just to just to 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 remind uh, us that the 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 gospels are first century works that means for example that they're pre-freudian and so there's not a lot of there's not a lot of uh emphasis on you know what the internal thoughts and psychology of any of the figures who appear and are described in the gospels and one thing I often point out is you know, we do a modern biography and almost always, again, if it was a biography of, of a historical figure, a president or something, they would start off usually talking about their family and their, their boyhood, their childhood. And they'll talk about these things happened when they were young and this affected them, you know, show me the boy and I'll show you the man sort of thing. And one of the things, you know, when we get to the, when we look at the gospels is we have two gospels you know, that Matthew and Luke that tell us about the birth of Christ in Bethlehem. Um, And we have one account of his childhood, we might say, in Luke 2, as a 12-year-old, as his family goes up to Jerusalem uh, for the Passover. But, but, But other than that, we have nothing about the childhood of Jesus. Uh, According to Luke 3.23, He's about 30 years of age when he's baptized and begins his public ministry. Um, But that would be one example of how we have to take the Gospels on their own terms for what they are Mm -hmm. and not try to impose upon them modern expectations of what a biography should be about. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. Well, you've mentioned the four Gospels now, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and I think you mentioned John, perhaps you haven't, but we do have four Gospels, and I wonder if Christians have ever asked the question, why why four? Why do we have four Gospels and not just one? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very intriguing question, and that's another one, you know, we're hardly, you know, inventing the wheel here i mean these are questions that have been pondered and asked you know for centuries there's no book that's been discussed more there's no book that's been written more about than than the bible and these questions are really important why do we just have one gospel um earlier this year i had a man in my church um he's he's not yet a member but i guess the ancients would call him a hearer you know he's coming to our church and he came to me and he said pastor um a friend of a friend of mine gave me this little booklet and he had this nice little neatly bound booklet and um he wanted to bring it to me to see if it was safe for him to read basically and it was interesting because it was a uh, it, it was called the life and teachings of jesus and it was put out by an evangelical ministry called plus nothing but basically i looked at it and 
it was an amalgam of the four gospels um and there have been a number of these over the years and it, it, it gave me an opportunity to talk to this fellow about the fact that you know i don't think this thing is wicked or evil but you know this isn't the way hmm. the first christians saw fit they, they didn't have an amalgamation of all four gospels into one but they had the four unique distinctive gospels and so there the, the, there was something in early christianity that, that recognized the need for a fourfold gospel and what's really interesting i did a podcast about about that that that, that book that my fr- friend brought me from church and um i i think i put in there a, a new diatessaron because there was this same thing happened in the early church there was a fellow named Tatian. he was a disciple of a guy named justin martyr and he created a work called the dia tesserone or the through the four we actually don't have any um copies of it anymore we have we have i think an arabic version of it but he wrote it he put it together and it was actually very popular apparently especially among um uh i think syriac speaking christians but eventually this this work was rejected uh in favor of having the fourfold gospel it's interesting um also marcion who was sort of an arch heretic uh much spoken against he also tried to whittle the four gospels down to just one Hmm. in this case he chose just the gospel of luke but he had a kind of a mutilated version of the gospel of luke he took out the jewish parts of it that he didn't like he took out uh the birth narrative of christ for example but again orthodox christianity rejected the idea of an amalgam or or trying to have one that they said no we need four and in my class often i i sketch out i, I some of the reasons i i think this is the case um you know all the christ himself and the, and the early followers of christ the apostles were um were jews and they knew the old testament they had love and respect for the old testament they saw what they were writing they saw the christian movement as in continuity with and fulfillment of the old testament and if we think for a second about the old testament we have places in the old testament where we have more than one account of things so for example we have uh first and second samuel and first and second kings which tell us about the kings of israel but we also have first and second chronicles and so we have a sort of we have parallel witnesses that are different but tell us the same account that are unique but they're in harmony with one another and another another point that's often made is that in the jewish context uh, there was an emphasis on there to be a need for two or three witnesses to establish a matter mm-hmm. you look at like deuteronomy seventeen six, and so there's a sense in which we all we just don't have two or three witnesses we have four witnesses to the life of christ and of course apologists over the years have come up with various other you know examples you might you might say well four witnesses to one event or you know imagine an artist uh, who who t- wants to paint a picture of a subject and you get four artists and they each paint a portrait of the person and each one of the of the depictions is unique but it's it's the same person 
and there's a, there's the reality that comes through the same person. And so Christians have long affirmed the value of the unity of the four Gospels, but also their diversity, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, in your opinion, these Gospels, they need to be considered, um, each one of them, on their own terms. Uh, at the same time, there is some benefit to comparing them. Uh, there's still value in that. I mean, these are not, did you, did you say amalgams of, of, of the Gospels? Yeah. Uh, but I think of uh, Calvin's commentary, mm, uh, where yeah. he um, comments on the Gospels kind of all at once by uh, – you know, uh, showing where they uh, agree, and when they agree, he comments on those texts um, all at once. I have this resource in front of me, too, right now, the Synopsis of the Four Gospels by Kurt Alland. Is that how you say his last mm. name? Alland? Yes. Or Alland? Yes, okay. Kurt Alland. Alland, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a neat resource. What do you think about resources like this, Calvin's approach and the synopsis? Yeah, of the I mean, I think, that, I think they can be helpful. I mean, I, I have that one, and I have one by a fellow named Throckmorton. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also um, there's also a, a harmony of the Gospels uh, that that was put together by A.T. Robertson, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and so those can be helpful. And there's a sense in which, yes, sometimes we say you should read the God the four Gospels. Um, you should read, first of all, each individual gospel, we might say, um, vertically mm-hmm. from beginning to end. You sit down and read Matthew beginning to end, Mark beginning to end, Luke beginning to end, and John. But then you also uh, uh, read them horizontally. So you read a passage in Matthew, you compare Mark, you compare Luke, you compare John. And it's interesting, that was done from the very earliest days, um, Eusebius of Caesarea, uh, the, the father of church history created a, 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 a canon, uh, a, a, a table of canons comparing the four gospels. And so that's always been a way that Christians have gone about it. You know, Irenaeus of Lyon was uh, one of the church fathers in his work against heresies. He said, we have four gospels because there, it, it reflects the four corners of the earth. You know, hmm. we've got North, South, East, and West. So we've got four gospels. Um, uh, already by the time Eusebius is writing his ecclesiastical history around the year 325, and he and he lists the the, the books that are being received. Uh, he 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 refers to the gospels as the holy tetrad of the gospels. But on the other hand, many of these early writers are are making the point that there are four gospels, but there's just one gospel in the end. And I think that's also significant with respect to the titles when you think about them again. Ta Evangelion. Kata Matthaeon, yeah. the gospel according to Matthew. Here's Matthew's account of the gospel. And so there, there's unity and diversity. As you mentioned, um, going back to Augustine of Hippo in the year 400, he writes a harmony of the evangelists. And he's one of the first ones to pick up on uh, and to write about uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke being very similar to one another, but John. Uh, you know, giving us the same key facts, especially with respect to the the passion and the resurrection, but that John is unique and distinct. Mm-hmm. And uh, he uses an, an image, uh, Augustine does, he, he says the gospel is like a chariot. And 
uh, it's being pulled by four horses, mm-hmm. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, you mentioned Calvin. In Calvin's commentaries on the Gospels, as you, as you noted, he follows sort of in the train of Augustine. He actually uses that exact same analogy in his introduction to his commentary on the four Gospels. He says, you know, it's, it's, it's one Gospel being pulled by four horses. And so he does one commentary on a harmony of, the, of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then he does a separate commentary on John. And it's interesting. I was just, I, I was just in Michigan last week for a, a conference uh, on Calvin studies, and I got to go to a place called the Meter Center at, the, at, at Calvin University and look at uh, an original edition of Calvin's uh, commentaries on the four on the on the the, the the first three gospels and his commentary on John. Mm. So it was really really neat to see that. Wonderful! How cool. Well. I know uh, there's no small debate over uh, this next question, uh, when and where and for whom were the Gospels written? Uh, there, there's a lot of different answers given to this uh, question here, but what do you say, Dr. Riddle? Yeah, well, it's another, this is another, we're, we're kind of going through, obviously, foundational questions, you know, yeah. uh, and obviously, the question of when is the question of the dating of the Gospels, the, the, the question of where they might have been reading sentences we call that the question of provenance um and and then also there's there's the whole issue of the purpose of the gospels and there was a time in the 19th and into the 20th century when most mainstream academic scholars would talk about um the gospels being sort of each being written for different communities um and so, um, I mean, when we read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they don't they don't explicitly tell us, you know, this is this Gospel is being written for the church at Jerusalem or Antioch or whatever. But, anyways, the old idea was they were sort of they came out of individual communities. They were written for a particular church or group of churches, and then only later did they did the the various Gospels have contact with one another. But that idea has recently actually been challenged in the late 20th century into the 21st century. And uh, there's a fellow named Richard Bauckham, uh, who is a scholar, mainstream scholar in the UK, now retired. But he he um, wrote an essay and then combined with some other people uh, to, to put out a book in 1998. It was titled The Gospel for All Christians rethinking the audiences and he made the argument uh in that book that the gospels were not just written for one individual church community but the the authors knew they were writing for the 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 wider reading community of christians and so um so there's been some pushback on that There, there are a lot of strong early traditions that 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 would put the gospels in specific places like a lot of the early writers say that mark the gospel of mark for example was written in rome because peter was there and and mark is associated with peter we'll talk about authorship maybe later um the gospel of john is very heavily associated with ephesus and you think about the 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 book of revelation 
in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 that have the letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And what's the first church that's addressed? Ephesus. Um, so there's a strong association. And then there, you know, there are other views. Sometimes Matthew is associated with Jerusalem or Antioch. And the suggestion is that he wrote for in a Jewish context, a Jewish Christian context. Luke, uh, maybe in a Gentile context. So, so that's a little bit about, you know, where they might have been written. But in the end, we, we have to say we don't know. We're not told. Uh, specifically within the the gospels themselves and the scriptures are sufficient obviously we don't need to know that for them to achieve their purpose as to date of course this is another controversial issue there was a time in the 19th and 20th century where some of these radical german scholars were wanting to say that the gospels were very late uh, i think there was a fellow named bruno bauer who wanted to you know put the gospel of john in the fourth century and of course they were saying there's there's no possibility that this high christology could have could have come out of you know primitive christianity and so they had this bias of basically unitarianism but um in in modern days the dating of the gospels even in, in the mainstream academy has been moved earlier and earlier um another issue and we talk about this in the gospels class uh, among more more rationalistic scholars of the 19th and 20th century is relates to um how uh they see possible references to uh the the fall of jerusalem in 70 a.d to the romans and when you have people who don't believe in the supernatural aspects of the gospels who don't believe in prophecy they see some of the references to jerusalem falling as ex eventu after the fact prophecies but of course we who are are believers and see a supernatural dimension to the gospels and who believe that christ is a great prophet priest and king mm-hmm. can say that we think there might be references to the fall of jerusalem but that's because christ accurately prophesied these things but like i said even in mainstream scholarship the tendency is to date the gospels earlier and earlier mm-hmm. Uh, even back in the in the mid 1970s, uh, a fellow named John A. T. Robinson came out with a book called "Redating the Gospels," where he argued for a pre 70 dating for all of the Gospels. Oh, oh all of them. Um, okay. yeah. Yes, uh, all all the Gospels. Um, and anyway, again, this 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 question comes up. In, in the end, we don't know. We're not told specifically. We don't have any gospel that says, "I am writing this." in this year um and you know so we don't have internally specific evidence but you know we can assume that the early christians would would have recorded these things you know fairly early they would have wanted to have um a a written text from which to preach teach to to catechize and so forth we know Mm -hmm. the spirit was at work obviously it's not just a human thing and one interesting thing is if you look at the um what are sometimes known as the byzantine manuscripts many of them suggest dates for the gospels um so they say matthew was written eight years after the ascension of christ mark 10 years after luke 15 years after john 32 years after although some people have suggested there's what's a so-called cascading error in those dates so that it might be you know not mark was not 
10 years after the ascension, but 10 years after Matthew wrote his gospel, that sort of thing. Yeah. But but anyways, even, but that, these, these colophons, as they're called, these little scribal notes that are in the gospels indicate that uh, you know, there were Christians, you know, who were believing the Gospels were written, you know, not decades and decades after the, uh, the, the incarnational ministry of Christ, but within, you know, a decade or, or more after uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Mm. And, you know, lastly, you know, I might just say, you know, what, what, with, with respect to what is the purpose of the Gospels, um, I think John gives us the purpose. I mean, he, John gives us a purpose statement in John 20, verses 30 and 31. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. And so the Gospels are not they do not attempt to be exhaustive descriptions of the life of Christ mm-hmm. and the teachings of Christ, but they are selective descriptions. And as I often tell my students, and even when I teach in a secular college, I, I tell them, you know, whatever you think about the Gospels, you would have to agree that, that they were highly effective, were they not? And they're still effective. Mm-hmm. They still work in showing us Christ and, and they, they achieve their purpose of bringing men to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we might have life through his name. Amen. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, you've already begun to talk about this a little bit, uh, Dr. Riddle, but c- can we talk about authorship um, in a more in-depth way? Uh, again, I know there's a lot of controversy about this. Um, yeah, it's, this is kind of like dating. You know, there's there's the dating of the Gospels. There's also controversy, has been controversy in the modern era, obviously, with yeah. respect to authorship. But we might begin with the traditional view. And so we've got four Gospels, and the traditional view is that Matthew was written by the Apostle Matthew, mm-hmm. that, that Mark was written by we would call him maybe an apostolic associate, John Mark, uh, who was the companion of Paul on his first missionary journey, uh, but also a companion of uh, the apostle Peter. And Peter makes reference in First Peter 5.13 to you know, Mark being his son in the faith. Luke, uh, also not an apostle, but an apostolic associate associated with uh, the Apostle Paul. And so Luke is the author of the Gospel of Luke. He's also the author of the Acts of the Apostles. And in the Acts of the Apostles, there are the so-called we passages, Mm -hmm. the first person plural. You know, we preach the Gospel in Macedonia. And so we came to Rome, he says in, in Acts 28. And so the idea is that that Luke was a companion of Paul. And then finally, John. Um, Tradition takes John to be John, the son of Zebedee, the brother of James. Um, And so if we think about the four Gospels, we've got Matthew and John, who are apostles. We have Mark and Luke, who are not apostles, but who are apostolic associates. Mm -hmm. And actually, uh, 
One of the arguments I've heard Michael Kruger and others make this um, speaking and writing, one of the biggest arguments in favor of the authenticity of this tradition is if Mark and Luke are, are supposedly pseudonymous works, why would they attribute them to Mark, a fellow who had to drop out on Paul's first missionary journey sure. yeah. and who caused a split between Paul and Silas when he went out, or, or, or um, Paul and Barnabas, rather, when he went out on his second missionary journey, according to Acts 15, and Barnabas took Mark and Paul took Silas. Why would this gospel be attributed to Mark? unless it was actually written by Mark. And the same thing with respect to Luke. If they were just going to create a pseudonymous author, why not say it's the Gospel of Thomas? That's what the Gnostics did. Mm -hmm. Um, So anyway, so so that's that's just a little apologetic argument in in favor of the authenticity of of the tradition. But if you read mainstream academic scholarship, they will point out, rightly, we we should acknowledge this, that at least with... Uh, the first three Gospels, they are technically or formally anonymous. That is, the author does not identify himself. Matthew doesn't say, my name is Matthew and I am writing a Gospel. It does have the title uh, of the work, but within the, the, the text itself, the author is not explicitly identified. Now, I think there's some clues that tell us you know, for example, with respect to the Gospel of Matthew, because if you're looking at Matthew 10, where um, there's a listing of the 12 apostles, and you're, if you're looking through that list of the of the 12 apostles, and you get to the, the name of, of, of Matthew, there's something that is uh, distinctive there in Matthew 10, 3, it says Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the publican or the tax collector. Hmm. And that's the only list of the 12 where he's explicitly identified as the tax collector. And so some see that as a sort of a, you know, a cameo reference (laughs) identifying um, um, the author. But anyways, uh, we, we must say that that they're formally or technically anonymous and 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 modern historical criticism has sort of sort of pushed that door wider and they've suggested oh well these were just anonymous christians and they just you know they just called it matthew's gospel they just called it john's gospel uh, and, and and so they 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 would deny basically the tradition and now i mentioned that the gospel of john however we could make an argument a counter argument in favor of traditional authorship by saying that john doesn't seem actually to be technically anonymous in fact there are a couple places where john seems to identify himself as the author that we have an apostolic author so in john 19 verse 35 just after the account of the soldier thrusting the spear into the side of christ uh after he has died it says and he that saw it bear record and his record is true and he knoweth that he uh, that he saith true that ye might believe you know we got the purpose statement in there and then at the end of john in john uh 21 24 the next to last verse it says, this is the disciple which testifieth of these things 
and wrote these things and we know that his testimony is true and so in this case if you read the previous context it's talking about the beloved disciple it seems to be telling us the beloved disciple who wrote this gospel is john the apostle um so uh, at any rate i think there's good reason good evidence to defend what i would call the traditional view of the authorship of the four gospels but um i, I try to make students aware of the fact that that this is not generally re received in mainstream academic scholarship and one will even find evangelicals from time to time who will say things like it's not that important to think that mark was written by you know john mark etc so anyways I, I i've kicked i've kicked the uh, the, the the bee's nest uh, the hornet's nest a little bit and um th th there's some ideas about authorship of the gospels well, thank you for that, uh, Jeff. That, uh, it's really interesting to consider authorship. Um, I wish we would just stick with the traditional view. It makes a lot of sense. You know, they were written by uh, who they say they were written by. Let's go with that, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and again, I, I, we talk about this in a seminary class. We talk about this in a in an academic class because it's you know you you, you need to know this. Yes, yeah. but obviously, I believe the Gospels were written by the men. That, that they have been traditionally attributed to. Yeah. And so when I'm preaching, for example, I have no hesitation in saying, yeah. Matthew wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Mark said this, Luke said this, John said this. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, but, but I think it is important that we know that this is, this may be um, guiding the thought of scholars that we might read. Oh, I agree. It's an important issue to discuss, and uh, we need to show evidence for uh, this traditional view, which which you've done. I appreciate that. Um, you know, you, we've we've been talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and earlier we um, already said that John is different. Uh, the three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are oftentimes called the synoptic gospels. I wonder if you would define that term for us, and then um, I wonder if you could also talk about the so-called synoptic problem. Uh, seminary students will be familiar with that term and yes. um yeah maybe even bring us into uh, the, the present and and address the question where the synoptic problem stands uh, even today if you could address yeah. this thank you this is another you know basic sort of stock issue that if you take a introduction to the new testament class at any university bible college or seminary in the world this is going to be a topic that will arise and uh, basically it's the question of what is the literary relationship between matthew mark and luke and again i, th I already mentioned this very early on readers uh, christian readers recognized that there were seemed to be similarities between matthew mark and luke whereas john you know seems to have you know some distinctive more unique aspects to its telling of the life and ministry of christ i mentioned you know augustine you know picked up on this in the year 400 and wrote about it it's interesting also in, in early christian art um there came to be uh, drawing upon the images of the four living creatures in Ezekiel and Revelation, distinctive um, uh, uh, symbols given to the, each of the Gospels. Uh, they're sometimes called the tetramorphs, that, that Matthew 
is the winged man. Mark is the winged lion. Luke is the winged ox. Um, and then uh, John is depicted as the eagle. And there's sort of this idea, sometimes people say, you know, it's, it's got this soaring rhetoric. Um, of course, there is harmony among the four Gospels. And sometimes I think, actually, in the modern era, there's been too much made of how different John is than the first three Gospels. Uh, they, they, are, they, they have great harmony. They tell us the same account. It's the same Christ in each one. Um, but there are things like the raising of Lazarus in John 11 is not recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record for us a similar outline, particularly in the beginning, the ministry of John the Baptist, Christ's baptism uh, by John, the temptation in the wilderness, Christ going about preaching and teaching the kingdom of, of, of God, the calling of the first disciples. And it follows that they follow a similar structure as they tell the story of Christ. And again, I think it's similar because it's just, it's historically accurate. But John, perhaps knowing that the other three Gospels had been completed, and we typically, traditionally, Christians have thought of John as being the, the latest of the Gospels, although even that is sometimes also challenged. Um, but he would have known that, that Christians were generally aware of the accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and chose to tell things under the guidance of the Spirit that weren't recorded in the other Gospels. Um if you go back to Augustine again, uh, he said that the Gospels were written in the order in which we typically find them in their canonical ordering. So, Matthew was written first, then Mark, then Luke, then John. And sometimes that's even called the Augustinian proposal or Matthean priority, that Matthew was written first. And he said, he said Mark abbreviated Matthew. Hmm. And then, and then Luke, you know, knew Matthew and Mark, and then John, you know, wrote his gospel. Um, but beginning in the 19th century, that sort of traditional view began to be challenged. And um, there began to be people who talked about the so-called synoptic problem. Um, I think they were largely influenced by what we would call source criticism, uh, this is the same era, if you're familiar with Old Testament studies, when scholars began to talk about the JEDP theories for the um, for the, the 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 Torah, that there was a Yahweh source and an Eloist source and a priestly source and a Deuteronomistic source, and and so this was just in the air in those times. It was being applied not just to uh, the Bible, but it's being applied to Homer. It was being applied to the Iliad and the Odyssey. What are the underlying sources that were used? And so, uh, in the the early 19th century, there were there were scholars who proposed uh, not Matthean priority, but they proposed Markan priority. And they said Mark is the earliest gospel, and they had various reasons for that. One chief reason is that Mark is the shortest of the gospels, just 16 chapters in length. And they suggested, contra Augustine, that it wasn't that Matthew was written and that, that Mark abbreviated it, 
But Mark wrote first, and then Matthew and Luke expanded upon that. And so, again, they were attempting to give an answer to why is there a literary relationship between Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Why is it they tell many of the same accounts um, in similar ways? And so, they said uh, Mark was a source, and then they posited uh, a, a document, a hypothetical document that they called Q. And it comes from the German word quella, meaning source. And so they said, um, Mark was written first. Matthew and Luke drew upon Mark, but they also drew upon this other source that we no longer have that was somehow a collection of the sayings of Jesus. And so they said, for example, this is why when we look at the temptation narrative, Mark tells about the temptation of Christ in two verses. But Matthew and Luke tell us about the threefold temptation that Christ underwent uh, at, at, at the hands of Satan. And they said that comes from Q. That came from this other source. So this, this view was very popular in the 19th century in mainstream, mainstream academic world. And then it was expanded. There was a British scholar who was very influential in the early 20th century named B.H. Streeter, he wrote a work in 1924 on the four gospels and he he came up with the idea of not just two sources but he said four sources in addition to mark and q he said there was there's material in matthew that's not in mark not in luke not in john and he called it the m source special matthew material something like maybe the account in matthew 25 of uh, Christ, uh, Christ's account of uh, the judgment of the, the world and the dividing of the sheep and the goats. That's from M, special Matthew material. And then he said on the other end, there are some things in Luke that aren't in Mark and aren't in Matthew. You know, the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. He said that came from L, special Lucan material. And so this was this held great sway in the 20th century. Many evangelicals embraced the same the same source theory, the four source theory. Um, but uh, as you sort of alluded to, as we come to the end of the 20th century and on to the 21st century, even in mainstream academia, there is there have been questions raised about the four source theory and particularly about Q. Because it's a, it was always a hypothetical document, and hmm. it, you know there, there's no Q manuscript that's ever been discovered, and so it was all a theory. And uh, it, even in, like I said, the mainstream academy in recent days, you know, gr- serious questions have been have been raised. And now uh, there are a group of scholars who have suggested uh what is now called the ferrer golder goodacre hypothesis mark goodacre is a scholar at duke university who's probably been the most prominent critic of q but they still are holding to a variation of sort of the modern view they think matthew was written first and then uh uh, or actually sorry mark was written first then matthew then luke and the similarities between matthew and luke can be described can be explained by Luke's dependence upon Matthew and not upon the existence of Q. 
Now, um, the, again, that's that's sort of mainstream academic scholarship mm-hmm. on the synoptic gospels. Um, personally, I hold to a different view, um, and it's called the independent development view. And uh, that is, I think that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are similar to one another because they were all drawing on the same Christian tradition hmm. independently. And basically, they're similar because they, they, they accurately describe historically what Jesus did and what he said. And I would say John also drew on that same uh, group of tradition, not to say that maybe they weren't aware of the existence of each other, but they were not literarily dependent upon one another. Hmm. And I think that's the view probably that most Christians sort of intuitively hold to, hmm. that each of the Gospels were written by men who were either eyewitness apostles like Matthew and John, or by apostolic associates, Mark, Peter's Gospel, Luke, Paul's Gospel. And the reason they're similar is because they accurately uh, tell us what, again, what Jesus actually said and did, if that makes sense. Well, that view is too simple, uh, Jeff. That's too simple. (laughs) (laughs) We need to make it more complex. Um, But I think some pushback might be that, well, the language is so similar to these stories are told in the same way, you know, so there must have been some literary source uh, undergirding them. How, how would you explain just the extreme similarity? Well, I think I, I would say that um, a couple things. I, I think I think one is, again, they were drawing on the same tradition. And I think these accounts of Christ, what Christ said and did, you know, would have been things that would have been repeated by the apostles. Um, I, I think we can think about in Acts 2.42, it says that one of the marks, distinguishing marks of the church in Jerusalem was that they were committed to the apostles' didache, to the apostles' doctrine. And so there was uniformity of language because th- this was told orally, and also, it may have been there. There may have been you know places where it was written down before the, the each of the written gospels, and so this gives uniformity. The other thing, though, is when you when you start to to look at the gospels, a lot of times there are the parallel accounts, but they're not verbatim the same right, in the yeah. Greek, and each gospel writer sort of with the help of the Holy Spirit, uniquely tells the account. The other thing overall as to, as to why they're similar, and again, this is, a mat, this is the difference between a confessional approach, a believing approach to the Scriptures versus a, a purely naturalistic, rationalistic view, is we believe the Holy Spirit was involved in this. And, and I think about in John 14, uh, 26, when Christ said to his disciples, but the Comforter which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Mm -hmm. And so the Spirit was bringing to the remembrance of these penmen the things that Christ had said and done and superintending that work. So, um so again, I think that explains the the uniformity. We don't have to have a, a complicated literary theory 
um, to, to, to make that happen. Yeah, that's a very important point. Um, in fact, when you said uh, that this is the, the believing view or the confessional view, I mean, that almost that caused some emotion to well up within me, brother, to think that th- that really is mm. the issue here, you know, believing that this is the product of uh, inspiration. This is this is uh, God's mm. word, ultimately, um, first and foremost, uh, before it is the word of man. So, I appreciate mm. you bringing that out. Um, you, you've talked a bit about the order of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What do you think about the order? Um First of all, as it pertains to the order in which they were produced, but also the order in which we now have them in in the canon of Scripture, is there significance to that? Yeah, I mean, I I I, I favor you know Augustine's view on this. I, I see Matthew, Mark, Luke, John as as the chronological order of the writing of the Gospels. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would hold to you know some form of Matthean priority. And I mean, I mean, we can go back all the way to Eusebius again. Already, we we can go to 325, and when he lists out the books of the New Testament, he puts the Gospels, the Holy Tetrad, in the order Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, same as it appears in in the vast majority of our Bibles today. Now, there was a so-called Western order of the Gospels that did appear in some Western manuscripts, and they basically just put the two gospels written by apostles first matthew john luke and mark even that's even that's interesting because mark is last um and it's interesting when you look at the manuscripts the the remains the extant remains of greek manuscripts of the gospels you can tell very quickly which were the most popular we have many more of matthew and john Hmm. than we do of, of luke and and mark um, so they were the most popular. It's interesting. Um, another thing Augustine says when he's talking about the order of the Gospels and his harmony of the evangelists, he says this, one of the significances of the order is he says Matthew and John, the apostles, are on the end. You know, they're the first and the, and the last there. And they're holding up their younger brothers in mm-hmm. the middle, <laughs> Mark and Luke. Um, but anyways, I think there is some significance. Uh, there is some flow uh, t- to the way. It's, it's interesting also, Matthew, the way it begins with the genealogy yeah. of the Lord, yeah. uh, you know, noting that he is the son of David, the son of Abraham. And that just flows beautifully when you've gone from the Old Testament Mm-hmm. into the New Testament. It's, there's sort of a bridge that sort of canonically that leads us from the Old Testament via the genealogy uh, into the Gospels. And uh, so, so anyways, I, I think there's, there's uh, you know, there, there's some meaning in the traditional ordering of the Gospels. And then, you know, the way that it's put together the gospels are there first they're in first place they have a foundational role they're gonna they're gonna give us the context for understanding everything else obviously next you've got the the acts of the apostles uh, also written by luke but but uh, sometimes people talk about luke acts luke hyphen acts and them about them them being a continuous literary narrative but canonically john is interposed there and so there's a sense in which strong sense in which Luke and Acts each stand on their own. And Acts is there to tell us about the events 
after the the death burial resurrection and it begins with the ascension of our lord but it, it's a it's a fitting um 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 follow up to all four of the gospels mm-hmm. and there, actually there are many things within acts i think that are that it's important you know mark and you know matthew and you know john as well as luke uh in order to to fill in the story and then you know obviously on to the 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 body of paul's writings the body of the general epistles and 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 revelation um i've heard it said and i'm 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 coming to agree with this more and more that the gospels in the new testament sort of fulfill the same role as the five books of moses Mm -hmm. in the old testament they're sort of the new testament torah Mm -hmm. And if we want to understand Christianity, we begin with the Gospels. We begin with their, the good news, the ta euangelion about Christ. And, I mean, we even have uh, Torah-like teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, for example. And, and this provides, again, the, the, the foundation for us then to understand the rest of the material that, that, are in, that, that is in the New Testament, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Well, I wanted to ask you about recommended resources, uh, Dr. Riddle. Uh, I realize that that could be a challenging question because we've talked about so much here, uh, you know, <laughs> recommended resources about what. Um, but maybe for those who are interested in learning more about the Gospels in general, or perhaps you have something on your mind about a particular subject we've addressed, what, do you, what would you say? Yeah. Well, I, I would uh, I would recommend first of all reading the Gospels themselves. You <laughs> know, sometimes answer. we 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 want to read all the secondary literature, and I, I have this same problem too. I want to read the secondary literature, but obviously we need to read the Gospels themselves. And, and as, I, as I said, reading each book beginning to end, reading them horizontally, uh, vertically rather first, and then horizontally comparing them one to another. Um, and you know, when when I teach this class. Um, both at the secular college where I teach, uh, and most especially in the seminary, I one of my requirements is that you read the Gospels. And for the seminary students, they have to have a journal, and they have to have an entry where they give a summary of each chapter of each Gospel. Because, uh, you know, if you want to understand Christianity, you've got to begin with the Gospels, I think, and they're foundational. They're the Torah of the New Testament. And you have to have you know, just like if you if you're going to study chemistry, you would learn you know, you would learn the table of elements. If you're going to learn Spanish, you would learn the vocabulary and so forth. If you're going to be a pastor, you have to be a man uh, who is mighty in the scriptures and who, who knows where things are in the Bible and, and can point people to passages. and And so there must be there must be deep familiarity with the content of the Bible. And the content of the gospels is a resource. It's the resource for our ministry. Um, so read the gospels themselves. Then I would say read good old commentaries. Uh, read Augustine's Harmony of the Evangelists. Read Calvin's commentaries, his Harmony of the Evangelists, and his commentary on John. You know, uh, and then you know, I'm, I'm not excluding all more contemporary works. Uh, you know, Banner of Truth has the great. Uh, you know. Uh, a series of J.C. Ryle's exposition of the Gospels. Uh, those are those are just wonderful. Um, I, I was preaching through Matthew recently myself, and 
Spurgeon's commentary on Matthew is just gold. I, I loved it. I, it, was, it devotionally, it was, it was, it was, there were so, so many quotations. I know my people in church, church probably got tired of me reading quotations from Spurgeon's commentary on Matthew. But anyways, reading the Gospels themselves, the primary sources, reading old commentaries, and then I think reading, you know, tr- reading contemporary works as well. Uh, one, one work I would recommend, just a, it's a short book, a recent book, and I actually have students in the seminary class read this, is Peter J. Williams' book, Can We Trust the Gospels? It's published by Crossway in 2018. And Williams uh, is, I don't know if they call him the principal or the warden or something like that at the Tyndall House uh, in Cambridge. And it's a good little apologetic book covers basic issues of why the Gospels are historically reliable. And um, I, I found that students enjoy that. It's not, it's, it's a, it's a fairly easy read. Um, I think it's less than 250 pages, um, but I, I recommend uh, that book. And, you know, for the students who take my class, I give them uh, what I call a select annotated bibliography on the Gospels, where I go through different topics like we've been discussing today, things like authorship, date, synoptic problem, provenance, and I list two or three books, and I then I give a little short description of what I found in that book mm-hmm. that might be helpful. And, um, you know, I'll tell you one other resource is, you can come to Mansfield, Texas in November, and you can take the Gospels class. I, I don't, even if you're not a full-time matric, matriculated student, I think you can take it as a special student. If you live in the Dallas, uh, Mansfield, Fort Worth area, um, it's going to be an intensive class. Um, if you've got the time to come or, or you got vacation time and you have to work that out, I have no idea, the registrar at IRBS. But um you know, that that might be uh, also something that, that you might be able to do if you're really interested in, in doing an intensive deep dive study of the Gospels. We'll do that uh, that week in November. Mm, wonderful. Well, thank you again uh, for setting this time aside for us. Uh, really rich, um, very moving, too. I, I feel like I want to, you know, uh, finish up this recording and open up the Scriptures and just begin to read. So, uh, <laughs> uh, Wonderful. Well, to our audience, I I do hope this conversation has been helpful to you in some way. If it has, please consider sharing it with others. And lastly, don't forget to check back with us next Monday for a new episode. Until then, abide in Christ. Thank you for listening to Theology in Particular. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for future podcasts, please email TIP at IRBSseminary.org. For more information about the seminary, go to IRBSseminary.org. IRBS is a confessional seminary committed to the inerrant and infallible Word of God as summarized in the Second London Confession of Faith. Since our podcast sometimes addresses issues outside the confession, please understand that the views and opinions expressed on theology in particular are not necessarily those of IRBS, its trustees, or every faculty member. 